0: Well, last week we took a look at God's preparation of Joshua, the man Joshua, who was to lead Israel into the promised land, a land that God was giving to this nation that He built, this nation that He formed out of nothing. And now we're setting the stage for the task ahead as we transition from looking at Joshua's preparation to Joshua's task. We're going to be seeing the plot here of the book of Joshua and what the book of Joshua is all about. And I want you to turn with me to the book of Genesis. Go back to Genesis chapter 12, if you would. There are five passages that I want you to see this morning before Joshua chapter 1, because just as Joshua himself had a background that we had to study and learn, so too the land has a background. The book of Joshua is all about Joshua and this people going into this land, Well, we have to have some sort of a background about this land and why that's important. If you don't understand that, you'll miss out on a big part of the book of Joshua. You won't understand the conquests that are found in the book of Joshua, the battles that are fought in the book of Joshua, and the Lord's commands to do difficult things in the book of Joshua. And the first of these five passages is in chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse 1. This is God making a promise to Abraham, who at that time was Abram. Genesis 12.1, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. So right here from the beginning, as God is calling Abram, he's going to a land. That's the first thing that's happening. It's a land that God himself is going to show Abram, and it's a special land that God is giving to Abram, and we're going to see more and more of those details. Drop down to verse 5 with me, Genesis 12, verse 5. It says, Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the side of Shechem to the oak of Morah, Now the Canaanite was then in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So here we see, just real briefly, an unconditional promise of God. God's not saying this is your land if, fill in the blank, there is no if. God has called Abram out and he says, I'm going to do these things through your life. You're going to be a blessing to the whole world. Your seed is going to increase. You will have many descendants, and there's a land that I'm giving you. And for the purposes that we have here this morning, we're going to look, we're going to trace that land promise through a few passages in the Torah. But it's an unconditional promise that God is giving this land to this new people. God's giving this land to the people. And Abram, interestingly enough, he's only going to have a burial plot in this land, As far as Abraham is concerned, he's not going to see this promise totally actualized in his lifetime. He's just going to get a burial plot, but his descendants are going to enjoy much more of the land than him. Look at the next chapter with me, Genesis chapter 13, starting at verse 14. Genesis 13, verse 14. It says, Yahweh the Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, now lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth so that if anyone can number the dust of the earth, then your descendants can also be numbered. Verse 17, arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and came and Dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Well, this unconditional promise is a forever promise. We see here. Look at the end of verse fifteen. It's a land that's given to Abraham's descendants, and he gives a time period, forever. It's a forever promise, and I love how God has him get up and walk around. (laughs) go feast your eyes on this land. And it's not just a general land. He gave them specifics for the boundaries. And he says, look, walk its length, walk its breadth. This land is your descendants' land forever. Turn with me to chapter 15, Genesis chapter 15. This is where we get that amazing verse. It's verse 6. Abraham believed the Lord. He believed Yahweh, the promise of Yahweh. And it was counted to him as righteousness. God counted his faith as righteousness. That's an amazing verse that's quoted often in the New Testament. But interestingly, shortly after that, Abram asked God, this is just two verses later, Abram asked God, how will I know that this land really is mine? He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then two verses later, how will I know that I will possess this land and that my descendants will have this land? Well, what God has Abram do is quite interesting. He has him gather some animals and he's splitting the animals in two. That's what Abram's commanded to do. One side of the animal over here, another side of the animal over here. And this is a setup for a covenant. And often what would happen in a conditional covenant is you have two people upholding their sides of the deal and they would pass through the slaughtered animals and they would be vowing to one another that they would keep up their side of the deal. So Abram slices these animals and sets them one side to one side and one side of the animal to the other side. And look at what happens next. Verse 17 of Genesis 15. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt, it's the Nile, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. So the unilateral nature of this covenant is here confirmed. Abram doesn't have anything to do to keep up his side of the deal. God is saying, I am giving this land to your descendants forever. It's my promise unconditionally. It belongs to his descendants forever. Chapter 17 of Genesis, turn over just a page or two. Genesis 17, verse 6, we see this come up again. After God changes His name to Abraham, He's no longer Abram, He's now Abraham. Look at what the Lord says. Genesis 17:6. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So again, we see this is a forever promise. It's an everlasting covenant. It's an everlasting possession of the land and his descendants are going to possess this land forever and ever. That's quite amazing. Now turn with me to the end of Deuteronomy. We're just a couple pages before Joshua. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 29, the last verse of Deuteronomy 29. It's the fifth book of your Bible. Just turn forward past Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers and find Deuteronomy. And this is the last passage I want you to see before we get to Joshua chapter 1. Deuteronomy, 29:29 29, 29, and I'll read through chapter 30 verse 5. A great memory verse for you right here. Deuteronomy 29:29. 29, 29. It says, "The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law." <laughs> there are secret things of God, don't you know? I hope you know that. (laughs) There are things that God knows that He hasn't shared with you. Agreed? (laughs) And this can be called the secret will of God. He's working things together in the world to bring about His purposes, purposes that He hasn't shared with us that are just happening in the world around us. And this is according to God's secret or hidden will. But then there are things that God has said, and He said them plainly. There are things that God has revealed that He's given to us, and we are to hang on to those promises. We are to hang on to those prophecies. We are to hang on to those teachings because they've been revealed to us. And notice again in verse 29, they don't just belong to one generation. Those revealed things of God belong to us and to our sons forever. Well, He's about to go on to say what Some of those things are that He's revealed. Let's pick it up now in chapter 30, verse 1. Just the next verse. So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all nations where the Lord your God has banished you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and soul according to that I command you today, you and your sons... Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there He will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it, and He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers." We see here the land showing up again, and the land is being used here in this case to demonstrate the faithfulness of God to that people. The faithfulness of the God of Israel to faithless Israel. In the chapters preceding this, Moses had walked through the blessings and the curses that come from the law. When you disobey God, which flows from a heart of disbelief, there are curses that come with that, Moses said to Israel. And remember, Israel was to be strictly under that law. And here it says, there's going to come a time where you're going to be scattered because of your disobedience. This disobedience will happen. These curses will come upon you and you won't be in the land. You see, remaining in the land under God's blessing was conditional. To remain in the land under the blessing of God was conditioned upon their obedience to the law of God. Israel had to have a believing heart and had to follow the Lord's commands if they wanted to remain in the land under God's blessing. But you know what we're also seeing here is that ownership of that land and ultimate restoration in that land is unconditional because God is saying it's going to happen. Just as there's coming a day where you you all will disobey and you'll be scattered all over the earth and you'll be driven out of this land. So there too is coming a day where I'm going to bring you back. Even if you're from the ends of the earth, you will come back and notice that they're not coming back with just a flippant attitude. Look at how they're coming back. Verse 2 of chapter 30, you will return to the Lord your God and obey Him with all your heart and soul, according to all that I command you today, you and your sons. God will do this among Israel. He's going to turn their hearts. He's going to sovereignly cause them to turn to Him and obey and be restored in this land that is theirs as an everlasting possession. Well, interestingly enough, Israel has never possessed the land in its entirety. When you consider the measurements that God gives, the Euphrates River, if you don't remember where the Euphrates River is, which I didn't this week, had to pull that up on a map. It runs through Baghdad in the middle of Iraq. That's pretty far east of what we call Israel today. That land is a really sizable piece of land, and in Israel's history, they've never owned or possessed the land, rather, in its entirety, but they will, God says. And Joshua here is going to lead the first push. If you just turn a few pages over, you see the book of Joshua begins. And in the book of Joshua, God demonstrates his commitment to covenant, his commitment to promise in and among his people. And Joshua was directed by God himself to go into this land, and he was equipped with a special and intimate promise from God himself. Joshua received special revelation from God that was given to him. God was promising Joshua certain things that would motivate him to enter this land and to lead all the people into the land. Look at this promise with me in verse 5. What an amazing, amazing promise. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Oh my. If you are called to dispossess a people who are in your land, how much confidence does that promise give you? Look at what he goes on to say. God says, just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Go down to verse 9. The middle of verse 9, Joshua is called to be strong and courageous. And God says this, Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. These are amazing promises. God here is not just telling him this land is yours, go. He says, this land is yours, I will be with you. He's not saying, go on your own and fight these battles. He's saying, I am with you, and no one will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. That phrase from God, I will be with you, is this the most comforting promise anyone could ever receive from God? I think it absolutely is. Yahweh says again in verse 5, that he would not fail or forsake Joshua. And this reality had to be Joshua's confidence. With what confidence could he go in with this band of people and drive out all these other people? He could go in with the confidence of God that says, I am with you, I will not fail you, I will not forsake you. What a special promise. It's really an intimidating task that Joshua had. Remember, he's not launching cannonballs from a far distance. He's not ordering drone strikes from across an ocean. He has a sword in his hand. That's how combat worked back then. It was very close. It was very serious. It was extremely dangerous. But God is with him and God will not fail him, and God will not forsake him. This promise here gets to the heart of who God is. In the wilderness, Israel constantly broke faith, didn't they? Why did they constantly break faith leading up to this moment? Why did all that generation die off those 40 years in the wilderness? They didn't believe God. They didn't believe God's nature that He's an unfailing God, that He's a faithful God. They saw these Canaanites who were there in the land, and they were afraid. And they said, I know what God has said, but if we go there, we will die. And here, this new generation is hearing the promise over again. I am God, and I will not fail you. I will not forsake you. Go in faith. And they won't be perfect in this endeavor that we'll see this in the coming weeks. They're not going to be perfect. But we see what God does through the faith of his people as they live for him and follow his commands. The previous generation rejected God's unfailing faithfulness. And Joshua here is called to lead the new generation in faith. Because the nature of unbelief is really rejecting God on his own terms. You want to know what unbelief is or a lack of faith is? It's rejecting God on His own terms. You might be in a situation that's really difficult. Well, we believe that you can live for God wherever you are because He has sovereignly placed you there. <laughs> you might believe it's, it's difficult for you to follow God in faith where you are, but God's in control and He says, follow me. I will not fail you. I will not forsake you. You don't have to capitulate. You don't have to give in. You don't have to compromise with lies and deceit in the world, but you can follow God wherever you are. And you see, this promise confronts the very substance of our faith. This confronts what we believe about God, who we think God is. When God says that He is not a failing God, this is an earth-shattering type of statement when God says unequivocally, unconditionally, I will not fail you. No one else can say that. You better believe your local weatherman can't say that. (laughs) The best baseball players get a hit 35% of the time. That's like elite. No one can step up to the plate and say, I won't fail you. You fail 65% of the time and you're one of the best. The best parents out there, the most loving, kind, sacrificial parents, they still fail us, don't they? None of us is able to say, I will not fail you. But God can. He can say that because He's ultimately powerful. He's absolutely sovereign, and He's totally, utterly able. God is the capital A able one. He will not fail fail you. And He will not forsake Joshua. He will not forsake you. Again, this is the end of verse 5. I will not fail you or forsake you. He's not a forsaking God. He is perfectly true to His Word. Again, something none of us could ever say. God is perfectly true to His Word. He is perfectly faithful. And when God makes unconditional promises… When God says, this is what will happen, He's faithful, isn't He? He will see it through to the end. When you are declared justified, when you're given the hope of heaven, will He ever turn back on those promises? Absolutely not. He's a faithful God. And He's also not a limited God. He's not a failing God. He's not a forsaking God. He's not a limited God. Go back to the end of verse 9. Where will God be with Joshua? At the tent? At the temple? In some sort of a mountaintop? Or some sort of a valley? The answer is yes. I will be with you wherever you go. Wherever Joshua finds himself, there God is. And God can make that promise because He's not limited like we are limited. When we start thinking that God has forsaken us and He's not present We start ascribing our sort of qualities to His nature. See how this confronts the substance of our faith? If we believe that God fills heaven and earth, as Jeremiah 23 says, that there's nowhere you can go to escape His presence, as Psalm 139 says. When we believe these things, we can grasp the promises. We can hold on to the promises that God will not fail us, He will not forsake us, and He will be with us wherever we go, because He is God and He is good, isn't He? he's loving, and he's gracious. This is just the the cherry on top. He doesn't fail us, he doesn't forsake us, and he's with us wherever we go. Now, in our day, we know as his church, by his promise, that because of Jesus, we always have God, don't we? I want to read to you a couple of passages from the New Testament. This is from Matthew 28. Matthew 28, starting at verse 19. Jesus giving the great commission says go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I commanded you and lo I am with you always even until the end of the age how could Jesus say that he is with them always even until the end of the age how can we Claim that for ourselves, that where two or three are gathered, He is there in the midst, even if two or three are gathering in different places in the world at the same time. Because He's not a limited God, is He? He doesn't fail us, He doesn't forsake us, and He's with us wherever we go. And then this amazing passage from our Savior, Jesus Christ, John 14. John 14, verses 16 through 24. Hear these sweet words. Jesus says, I will ask the Father and He will give you another helper, that He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it does not see Him or know Him. But you know Him because He abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. Amen to that. I will come to you, Jesus says. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Now, Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, What then has happened that you are going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And we, capital W, we, I love that. We will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. By the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the church of Jesus Christ is ultimately comforted, aren't we? By the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we have this presence of God. The Father and the Son make their abode with us by the power of the Holy Spirit, and God will not fail us. God will not forsake us. We have God. Now, Moses had to be convinced of this reality. Do you remember when God called Moses and he instantly had 500 excuses? God called Moses to lead this people and he just couldn't figure out why God would call him. What does God have to do with a man like me, Moses thought. And there he is at this burning bush and he's speaking to God and Moses is saying, I, I don't know if I'm equipped for this task. To live for the Lord and to be out front. But remember, this is the time when God discloses the divine name, Yahweh. When Moses asks, What is your name that I can share it? When people say, Who has sent you? God tells them, I am the I am. And that's just the most basic present tense be verb that we have in language I am. But what is that communicating about God? He has no beginning, He has no end, and He is with us wherever we go. He's the ever-present one. He's the one who will be with us, never failing us, never forsaking us. And interestingly enough, Joshua's name, the one who is now leading Israel into this promised land, his name means Yahweh saves. The present God who is always with us saves His people. In Jesus's name, is the same as Joshua in Hebrew, Yahweh saves. Because the ultimate expression of the presence of God is found in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the incarnation of the Son of God, who has come to walk among us and to bring us to God. Well, just as Yahweh was with Moses and Joshua, he is with us because of our union with Christ, isn't he? Fascinatingly, the author of Hebrews makes application of Joshua 1.5. This is from Hebrews 13.5, quoting Joshua 1.5. And the author of Hebrews says this about God never failing or forsaking us. In Hebrews 13.5, do we not have it back there? Okay, we'll do it the old-fashioned way. Hebrews 13.5, it's about contentment. And uh, the author recalls the book of Joshua, and I believe this is the only time Joshua 1.5 is referenced in the New Testament. The author says, starting in verse 5, make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Now, you don't, you wouldn't necessarily expect a quote from Joshua with a verse starting that way. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. He's quoting Joshua to instruct you about contentment here. God himself has said, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you. And what is contentment? Well, it's essentially resting in God's sovereignty. It's abiding in faith that God is sovereign, that God is who He said He is, that He will never fail us, He will never forsake us. And that's the direct application that Joshua had too. If you look again at Joshua 1.9, Joshua was called not to be fearful or anxious. God says, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed. <laughs> don't be afraid and don't be anxious. How many of you this morning need to hear that? Don't be afraid and don't be anxious. Why? Because the Lord your God is with you. He does not fail you. He does not forsake you. He is with you wherever you go. If you've come to know God through the person and work of Jesus Christ, this promise is yours, that God doesn't fail you, that God doesn't forsake you. And there's a Joshua-specific implication to all of this. This does not apply to you, but it applies to Joshua. Look again at verse 5, where we were looking at the promise there. The beginning of Joshua 1.5, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. If you go around making that promise for you, you're going to get in some trouble, okay? So that, that, God didn't say that to you. He said that to Joshua. And this is quite astounding. God is promising ultimate victory before the game's even started here. The game's over from God's perspective before it's even begun for Josh, from Joshua's perspective. No man will be able to stand before you. All the nation's enemies will be taken out because of God's power. What assurance this had to give Joshua. Total and complete assurance. When, when you latch on to a promise of God by faith, you know what the result is? Assurance. Assurance utter assurance, total rest and peace. And do you know what you can do with assurance and peace and rest? You can be strong and courageous for God. That's what I want you to see here this morning. Three times in this passage, Joshua is told, be strong and courageous. He's told that over and over again. He was told that from Moses and he's being told that by Yahweh himself. Be strong and courageous. Well, not on his own. You can't be strong and courageous on your own. You can't be strong and courageous as a means to assurance. But you can be strong and courageous as a result of assurance. When God says, You've won, now be strong and courageous. You see the difference between that and you want to win? be strong and courageous. (laughs) There's a big difference. But here God is issuing a promise to Joshua. The victory is yours. I'm the ultimate victor, and I'm giving you the victory. Now, go be strong and courageous. So it is from this assurance that Joshua could be commissioned. The unconditional promise of God was to be realized through unwavering obedience. The unconditional promise of God was to be realized through unwavering obedience. Let's read together, starting at verse 6. "'Be strong and courageous, for you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left.' So that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Well, the first part of God's commission here to Joshua is, of course, possess the land. And this was no surprise. Remember, Joshua has had 40 years to mold this over. <laughs> They've been wandering in a wilderness. That former generation has been dying off one by one by one, knowing that it's like a, an hourglass. The bodies dropping are like sand through the hourglass, and now it's time. Go possess the land, and there's no time to stop. I love this quote from Dale Davis's commentary. You're going to hear from Dale Ralph Davis quite a bit. He wrote a great commentary on the book of Joshua. He said, Moses may die, God's promise lives on. There is the passing of an era, yet the endurance of the promise. Yahweh's fidelity does not hinge on the achievements of men, however gifted they may be, nor does it evaporate in the face of funerals or rivers. I love that. God's promise doesn't evaporate in the face of funerals or rivers. Moses is dead, but the promise lives on, doesn't it? Therefore, go. God also here in this passage emphasizes the importance of obeying the law in this whole venture. Joshua was to take great care in submitting to the law, the law of his mentor, Moses. He was to meditate on it. He was to do it. He was to teach it just like Ezra. Ezra came nearly a thousand years after Joshua. But do you remember what Ezra was known for in Ezra 710? This was our memory verse in Bible college for our Old Testament class. In Ezra 710, it says that Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. The importance of the order can't be understated here. He was to study the law of the Lord. He was to then practice the law of the Lord. And then after those two things, he was to teach God's statutes and ordinances in Israel. Well, Joshua, it's a very similar commission. Look again at verse 7 of Joshua 1. It says, Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. There was to be no turning from the law. All the law had bearing on him and the rest of the nation. Their studying of the law, their meditating on the law was to result in righteous living and it was through that living that they would take the land. There was to be no pragmatism in Israel when it came to taking the land. There was no doing this man's way. It was all going to be God's way. If you can remember... Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2, it says, Blessed is the man who stays out of the way of sinners. Blessed is the man who doesn't seat at the table of the scoffers, doesn't stand in the way of sinners. That's what verse 1 is all about of Psalm 1, the very opening verse of the Psalms. Blessed is the man who stays away from the sinful path. But do you know what verse 2 says? It gives you something to do. The first thing is something to avoid. Verse 2 gives you something to do if you are reading and hearing that. So the, verse, the second verse says, blessed is the man who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night, who delights in the law. That's the blessing that Joshua was to take hold of here and to direct the people under. And did you notice a couple of times there was another promise here that if they were to do this, look with me at verse 8, Then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have success. Israel was to prosper under God, God's way. He gave them the prescription for prosperity in the land. And this wasn't any kind of naming and claiming, as you might see from the people on TV, the the late night preachers on TV. Name it and claim it according to your own selfish desires, whatever you want, just say that it's yours and God will use your speaking these words to actualize the desires of your heart in your life. No, 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 no. And that's not what God called them to do here. But God's people were to go into God's land and obey God's rules to receive God's blessing. This was to be done God's way, not man's way. And so, like I mentioned, Joshua here three times is told, be strong and courageous. God has given him all that he needs for success. Be strong and courageous. And again, it bears repeating that true strength and courage is the result of, not a means to, a promise from God. God issues us promises as his people, and in light of those promises, he says, Therefore, live this way. God doesn't reverse those two and say, Live this way, and then you'll get something from me. That's works righteousness. That's false religion. And that has plagued humanity since the beginning of time. True strength and true courage come from God's promise, not a means to God's promise. When we come to know God, and now we do so through the person and work of Christ, we, as God's church, can have total strength and courage, can't we? We can have strength and courage supplied by God Himself to live for Him and fight the battles that God has for us. We, uh, Jerry mentioned this last week when he closed the service, and we sang about it today in the hymn, Because He Lives. We too have rivers to cross, don't we? We too have have a place that we're going in life. God has called us and set before us a destination, hasn't He? And I, I never want the, the figurative here to overshadow what we're seeing in the book of Joshua, but it is a both-and reality, isn't it? Just as God was calling Israel through that literal Jordan River, just as God was calling them to that land that He set the measurements of and said, it's yours forever, so God, too, leads us through all kinds of rivers and leads us into all kinds of lands and has given us promises. And we can latch on to who God is, the never failing God, the ultimately faithful God, the unlimited, infinite God who is with us wherever we go. And we can be greatly encouraged through this book. We can be greatly encouraged in the reality of who God is and in light of His precious promises. And as He supplies His church and all the individual members of His church with strength and courage. We can fight the battles for Jesus. And our battle's not against flesh and blood, is it? We're going to read a lot about flesh and blood battles in Joshua. And we're in the same kind of battle, just we don't have a sword in our hand, and we're not actually cutting someone in front of us. But all day, every day, we are doing battle for God in the spiritual realm. And we're called to do this strongly and courageously because of what he has supplied through his finished work and his precious Holy Spirit. Let's pray. God, we thank you again so much for what we see in your word. We thank you how you have used Joshua in his life to teach us something thousands of years removed. And that over and over again, we're going to learn about the way that you work in our lives through the way that you worked in Joshua's life. We thank you that you are an unfailing God, that you never turn your back on us, so to speak, but that you are ultimately faithful and that you are with us wherever we go because of the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. And God, we ask that we would be supplied with great strength and courage to fight all kinds of battles. It is going on all the time, and sadly, we are so often asleep but God, we want to be awake for you. We want to be enlivened for your sake. We want to do battle for you, Lord, because that's what you've saved us for, is to live for you, and this life is for serving you. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We ask your blessing on this day and in the week ahead as we go out into the world for your sake. In Jesus' name, amen.